You are listening to a Heartland podcast. On last year's Heartland, the world-renowned American novelist Jonathan Franzen met with Danish journalist and editor Martin Krasnick in front of a live audience in the festival's talk tent. In the conversation you are about to hear, Franzen attempts to answer and discuss the question of whether or not literature can survive technology. The conversation contains everything from Franzen's passion for birds to climate change and how all of this is connected to the way we use and consume through technology. Franzen is skeptical of modern technology and how it has changed the way we behave and socialize in public and private spaces. Technology has also changed the way we consume literature and art and may have an influence on the experiences and the knowledge we gain in life. Jonathan Franzen got his international breakthrough in 2001 with the novel The Corrections, for which he received the prestigious National Book Award. The book was translated into 35 languages and became an international bestseller. In 2010, he published Freedom, which became an instant bestseller and prompted Time magazine to describe Franzen as the great American novelist. We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Heartland Podcast. Have you ever performed in a circus before, Jonathan? No. But it is your first time in a circus then. This is really amazing. I went to a circus once when I was a boy. I found it traumatic. I felt sorry for the animals. <laughs> Maybe they will feel sorry for us once again. <laughs> Pity me. Yes. Jonathan, th- Thank you for coming here to, uh, to this festival. It's a big pleasure to have you here. Um, we've met a few times before uh, where we've been talking about your books, twice actually in uh, your flat in Manhattan when you lived there. And at that time, I didn't know at all about your interest in birds. There was... A, there was a little situation, I think it was in the first interview, it's many years ago, where there was, you were distracted by something and it, it turned out to be a little bird uh, just outside the window in a tree. And, and you spent a little time talking about that to yourself, not to me, but to yourself, and then we continued. And I just thought it was annoying because we probably only had 20 minutes and I wanted to talk to you about your book. But now I realize that maybe we should have talked about that bird. Because being a big, you know, fan of your writing, I think, in general, I think when you write about birds, I'm, 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 I'm fascinated totally because there is so much love in that. Perhaps unexpectedly interested in birds. <laughs> I, I, I am very interested in birds. You know, I had a, I had a math. I had a math teacher in the 80s, and I don't remember anything he he, he taught, but I just remember one thing. Once a year, the secretary of the school knocked the door and said, I have a, there's a message to you, and he he left, and he didn't come back. And he didn't come back the day after, and the third day he would be back, and somebody somebody said, where have you been? And he said, oh, there was a sighting of a, 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 I don't know which bird, but some very rare bird <laughs> in northern Jutland, as it was totally natural to just leave everything to run away to see that very rare bird. Do you do that? Oh, not so much. Uh, most of the rare birds that show up in California, they don't want to be there. It's sort of sad. They took a wrong turn in Siberia <laughs> and ended up in California, and they probably won't get back to their fellows. So, um, and also there's sort of a carbon aspect. I don't think it's right to drive more than an hour to see a rare bird. Right. But if it's 55 minutes, I will drive to see it. Yes. <laughs> what, what is it, what is it uh, in the thing that you have to actually see it and not just hear about it or you have to see it? Why? It's like, well, you've got your girlfriend. Why do you need to see her? Um, it's like, you know she's there. Why, why? 
Well, it's nice to see her, yeah. right? Well, that sounds wonderful, but it's also nice to hear them, I guess, uh, the birds. It has become a distraction, admittedly. Once you become aware of how immersed in bird life we are, even in the city, um, I will hear something and I want to know it, who it is. It's like I'm hearing a friend speaking in a tree over there and I just want to just be quiet for a minute and figure out who that is. Okay, let's, let's uh, distract you uh, for a while. We will now listen to a bird, and you will tell us which friend it is that is uh, saying hi. Okay, wait. Uh, bird number one, please. Shh. I, I have really no idea. It sounds sounds like um, it sounds. It's not a. No, I have no idea. Next, please. Let, no, no, let's have the... Let's no. Have, uh, we, no, it's a heartland. <laughs> Can we have the picture of it? Got uh, it. Here it is. Wow. Again, That's oh. actually a... That is a California quail, of course. Yes, it is. In Ockentopvachten. That's an... Un, okay, yes. Yeah. Um, they sound a little different behind our house. Uh, okay, good. Yes, because they, they, sometimes they actually call you just behind your house. But here's another one. You write about that in in a book, and this is, uh, this is an Australian bird. Listen to this. Oh, well, this is probably a lyre bird. Can we see it, please? Yes. Incredible, incredible. Not just a lyre bird, but a superb Superb lyrebird, yes. And what is it's, it's in reality not the bands fool, but uh, you write about it in this book, and uh, and the thing about it is that it mimics sound, right? Then maybe its predecessors have heard fifty or hundred years ago. There is a theory that a population of lyrebirds in eastern Australia is singing a version of a classical tune that was played on a settler's piano sometime in the like nineteen. Um, when I tried to f check that fact for the National Geographic, I was told the evidence was inconclusive. Oh, really? Yes. They are incredible mimics. Yeah, fantastic bird. Okay, here is one. I'm sure you, you, you must know this one. Let's hear bird number three. Northern Parala? Almost. Cerulean Warbler? Yes, okay. that's the one. Let's see it. Here it is. What is it about this one? Oh, the Cerulean Warbler? Um, it's just a cool name. Uh, Cerulean has uh, been English uh, fairly... It's a beautiful old English word referring to heaven, and these do have a kind of sky blue color, um, and they're tiny little birds, and I just kind of fell in love with the name, and it featured in one of my novels. It, it, it really feeds, it was not, maybe not the main character, but almost the main character. Well, we don't get its point of view, so I would describe that as a distinctly minor character. Ah, okay, yes. Um, <laughs> but uh, you chose it because of its cool name, that's it. That's it. Kind of, yes, and also because it has the misfortune of having its breeding stronghold in precisely the part of North America where coal is extracted. So it was a, um, it was a way for me to slip some bird stuff into a novel in a way that um, inter intersected with a human story. And that, of course, is the terrible problem with writing about nature. Is Nature is great, but it's kind of resistant to the novelist because people aren't in it and frankly I like a novel with people in yeah, it. Right. But the thing about this one is that it has an amazing way of, of finding its way through continents really. Yeah, this spends the winter, our winter, uh, down typically in Peru or Colombia and uh, flies north um, every year and often goes back to the same tree in New Jersey. That's amazing. They are remarkable. Yeah. 
Okay. Okay. Jonathan, the last one is the is a very Danish bird. It's the national bird of, of, of Denmark, actually. It sounds like this. Yeah. I haven't had the pleasure. Okay, let's have a picture of it. It's just here. Yes, that's the one. That's your national bird? Yes, of course it is. <laughs> yes, you, it's you know, they eat ducklings. Exactly. <laughs> that's the they're one. not very nice. No, they're horrible birds. And yeah. they're violent and also very threatening. Yeah. Yeah, no, they're... Um, sorry... Not my favorite bird. Oh, okay, okay. So, okay, good. That's a good start. You did very well. You said you you wrote in uh, in one of the chapters here in your in your essays in the book here that that birds are not fury or cute, but they resemble humans in in a way that they that no no mammal actually is resembling us. How is that? Well, you can see them. You know, the world of mammals. Um, Except for the you know a handful of species, most mammals you never see. Um, it's an amazing thing for a human being to have seen a thousand species of mammals on this earth. Like five people have done that, because mostly they're nocturnal. They um, they're small, they're furry, they're they're furtive. They don't like to be seen. Whereas birds, they're just all around you, like we are. So. Walking in Copenhagen yesterday, I was seeing wood pigeons and uh, magpies, and there were swifts overhead. They're like there, just like we are. Um, also, they're two-legged. Also, they completely dominate the world, and they dominated the world for about 70 million years until we arrived to push them aside. Um, they're super smart, by and large. Um, They vocalize. They build nests like we do. They're 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 really very very human-like, and also utterly utterly not us. Right, because you you you, you like to write uh, about them in a quiet human way. You, you, for instance, you write that ground hornbills have eyes so expressive they could almost be human. A penguin before a group of photographers appeared to be holding a press conference, and so on. Uh, so so there is this 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 amazing thing that is both, you know, inspiring you to talk about them as humans and something radical other. Well, I find human beings ridiculous and make fun of them, <laughs> um, beginning with myself. And I feel like if you really love something, the first thing at least I want to do is make it a comic character. Um, so, yeah, yeah birds, are, birds are ridiculous. Uh, I was in... Helsinki once on a book tour and I watched a duck fly in and try to land on some slippery marble. It was this kind of, I don't know what, ledge of marble and it missed <laughs> and slid off the end and it was like, <laughs> and it looked back at the thing it had slipped on just the way we would. It was like, yeah, but, not me, it was, yeah, it, it it was, was one. <laughs> <laughs> the way, you know, when you trip on the sidewalk, it's not your fault, it's the yeah. stupid sidewalk. Yeah. So ducks are particularly ridiculous. Right, just like we are. What is it that birds are, are teaching us about ourselves? Um, mind your own damn business, keep away. Uh, don't come any closer. Um, that's the message I get from them, yeah. uh, which I appreciate. It's like, okay, I won't come any closer. They just want to be left alone and be allowed to dominate the world the way they have for 70 million years. And because they are the aspect of nature we are most likely to encounter, um, because they're completing their life cycles all around us. If you have birds in your backyard in July, it means they probably ha have a nest, which means that, that there is some kind of functioning ecosystem behind your house, which means there's still some bit of wildness, even in whatever suburb you happen to be living in. Um, 
they're not teaching us this, but I think a message to be taken from that is nature is still there. Don't give up on it. It's still possible to have wild living ecosystems. Right. Even in seemingly rather degraded places. Um, so let's not get so caught up in, in our human world that we completely write off nature. Jonathan, you, you wrote recently that, that birds are under threat uh, and the ecosystem that birds are living in, not because of climate change in the future, but because of what is happening now, just now. Can you explain that? Oh, yeah. I've kind of been on a crusade um, regarding climate change. Uh, the problem we will not solve. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm upset by the fact that being green thinking green has become essentially synonymous with fighting climate change, um, which, sure, that, that's a good thing to do, except we're not going to stop it. So it's useful to remember there are other ways of being green, like trying to protect nature as it now exists. Um, and I do feel that if the only way to be green is to try to reduce carbon in the atmosphere, um, what will happen is this massive global extinction event will just continue to unfold. And at the moment, that has almost nothing to do with climate change. The climate, the, the temperature could stop rising tomorrow, just flatten out for the rest of the century, and we would still have the largest extinction event in 65 million years because of other things we are doing. Mm. And the thing about a lot of those things is that we can do something about them. Yeah. So for reasons that, I'm, that take a little explaining and I will not go into now, I do think the fight against climate change is essentially hopeless. Right. A lot of people in this room would probably think, oh no, who should we vote for then? Because all the parties uh, at the election next week here are saying that we have to fight this, we can fight this, and this is the number one important issue. Yeah. Yeah, it's a yeah. problem, isn't it? No, it's a weird thing to be an American because there's climate deny. Everyone denies climate change. The, the Republican Party denies it in a maddening Trump-like way, um, in obvious defiance of the facts. But the Democratic Party also denies it to the extent that thinking, oh, we're going to lick this problem. All we need to do is spend these $3 trillion dollars, and by God, we're going to lick this thing, and everything's going to be okay. Not. Mm. Not. Not happening. Um, so, yeah, I vote for the Democrats because they're better at other things, not because I believe they're going to do anything about climate. So I would say just leave climate out of it when you're going to the voting booth. Okay. <laughs> All right. That was half the audience clapping there. Uh, what is it that we are losing when we are losing the nature around us today and the birds? What, I what is it that we as humans are losing, you think? You can make all sorts of arguments about the utility of nature, the utility of biodiversity, and there is some truth to that. People talk about all the great medicines that haven't been discovered in undescribed plants in South America and so forth. Um, and yes, we are part of the web of life, and uh, if you exterminate all insect life from, say, Western Europe, which Western Europe's doing a really good job at, uh, There will be consequences for people. Um, I don't think you can ultimately make a human-centric economic argument for the utility of nature. Um, what we're losing is the thing that we belong to, that we came from. It's kind of like, I think the comparison I use in my new book. Whoa. What was it? Oh, a bird flew in. Oh, really? That happens a lot in circuses. Someone help it, please. Yeah. Um, no, what we... What we <sighs> It's okay. You're thinking, which bird is it? Uh, Jonathan, <laughs> we, we've become 
very self-absorbed and oriented towards ourselves and our needs, of course. And this is a point that you're making a lot when talking about new technology. I want to, to build a little bridge here and talk about us and technology. You, you've chosen this little film, so let's see Jonathan's film, iPhone film. <laughs> Okay, I'm just going to go straight to my gloss on that. We are expected to identify with the laughing woman. Nice that she has privacy. Whose privacy is being invaded in that film? Who do I sympathize with? I sympathize with all the people who are incredibly annoyed by this person who's living in her private world and laughing, paying no attention to the human beings around her. This would seem to be sort of obvious, like human psychology, human politeness, human social dynamics 101. Not to Apple. Mm. Apple expects you to identify with the person who's shrieking with laughter and pissing off everyone around her. Because privacy is conceived of as something you're keeping within, not something you're invading by behaving badly in public. Um, again, well, that's a somewhat, okay, that's like a level 200 notion of privacy. I think it's an accurate notion of privacy. It, I, when I take a pee in public and people are standing around, yes, in theory, I'm exposing myself, my privacy is being invaded, but whose privacy am I offending? I'm actually offending everybody else's sense of privacy. Jesus Christ, don't be pissing in public, okay? Mm. Like, zip it up. Yeah. <clears throat> The larger point, since I, I'm a little bit opposed to these whole clips and I'd like to just do my gloss and move on from this one, um, the larger point is that uh, the people who design our technologies, I think, have in general a rather 12-year-old's view of human nature, um, a, a pretty profound incomprehension of what would seem to be basic humanistic values, um, and this was a nice example of that. What, what, in what way is technology doing this to us, to you, to me, to everyone here? Oh, that's a vague question, and maybe we should reframe it, please. Oh, okay, so everybody here has a, an iPhone. Everybody is using technology all the time. When we are on social media, like she is maybe, and and so on. In what, in what way are we encouraged to revert to this 12-year-old version of privacy that you're talking about? Well, it's like a four-minute argument that has to do with... Um, <clears throat> the brief version is four minutes. Uh, it has to do fundamentally with the... Um, the economic structure of the Internet... Uh, what the incentives are. The incentives are particularly to keep you glued to your device so that your data can be harvested and sold so that you can be a better consumer and you can be marketed to in a, in a, in a more targeted way. Um, and there's an enormous amount of money to be made there and almost all of it is being made by a very small number of people who control those platforms um, and the devices that enable those platforms. 
Um, they are designed to be bad for you. They're designed to invade your privacy. Generally, when anyone advertises something, when Trump says he's a stable genius, um, when he accuses Hillary of being crooked, they, what you accuse someone of, what you attribute to yourself, is usually the opposite of the case. So when, when, <laughs> when a company that is built on basically exploiting and depriving you of privacy, um, they, they will naturally advertise the, the opposite and trumpet that fact. Um, but the, the, the point is that the devices and the platforms are designed to keep you engaged, to basically have that be the center of your life, the center of your attention maximally, ideally 16 hours a day. Um, and there are some reasons to consider that sort of addictive behavior. And of course, in the same way that tobacco companies manipulated the levels in nicotine, of nicotine in cigarettes, Facebook knows what will keep you glued to Facebook. It's like it, they would be stupid not to manipulate you in that way. And we are very manipulated. I'm manipulable by nicotine. If you give me my treat, and you, the better you give me my nicotine treat, the, the more I will like your product. Um, it's very similar, I think, with the technology, except that at least with cigarettes, you're still in the world. When you're glued to your device like this, walking down the street glued to your device, you're no longer having a relationship with the world. And that has a lot of dangerous consequences, both socially, politically, and also with respect to nature. Yes, exactly. So here we have the very good. Ah, thank you. <laughs> because one thing, when looking at a film like this, you know, some years ago, she would be sitting with a book probably, or at least some of the other women there would be sitting with a book. What, what is the difference between sitting with a book and that one? Socially, not that much, except that I think pre-handheld devices, a person who finds herself uncontrollably laughing at the book she's reading, looks around and says, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just I'm reading this book and it's so incredibly funny. Um, didn't mean to disturb you, so sorry. That is what has fallen away. The notion that the other people around you exist to the extent that you have to acknowledge their presence and explain why it is that you're violating this basic social norm. Yeah. Um, because uh, if you're reading a good novel, at least, I think you should probably be living in a world of human relationships. Um, you're attentive to the fact that we're thinking, feeling, social beings, and you might actually be more aware, not less, of the people around you as a consequence. Yeah. I guess it's, it's, it must be revolutionary then, because, I mean, the one thing you have to teach your kids is that you are not the center of the universe. This is the first thing you're trying to teach your kids, right? That's right. And then, and then you, you give them a phone. And you give them a phone when they're six or they're 12, and it's giving them the opposite message, which is, yes, that is, this is why consumer capitalism, which was doing great already in 1990, was not like America was, which is where I come from, was so immune to consumer capitalism. It was, it was rampant. But then it found this way that it could basically take over everything. Yeah. It was this, so it was this, wherever we were with the slow climb of that sort of atomization of people, atomization of a democracy into individual consumers, wherever we were with that in 1990 has gone like this with the advent of the internet and particularly the technology that you can always have with you. It enables you to create your own world that you're at the center of. And what you want is what you get. And if you don't like a fact, well, you don't have to accept that fact because the internet, hey, conveniently, offers you this entire world full of facts that you like. And, and in fact, that world is now telling you Oh, that other world of facts, that's fake news. You don't have to believe in that. So you can basically find whatever you want, and you never have to be challenged by actual interaction with 
people who might be different than you. The thing that was supposed to bring us together, in fact, has, again, you listen to the rhetoric, you listen to the utopian rhetoric, you listen to the advertising of the 90s. I was present at the creation of this shit. Um, yes. And, and, and was writing about it then, actually, too. Um, uh, well, you wrote a, an essay in Harper's Magazine where, and I think it was called, it was called Why Bother? Yeah. Uh, where you actually, you were really, really worried about everything like this would affect art and literature. Looking back at that essay right now, what do you think has happened you know, with art, our, in our, our connect, connection to arts and literature? Uh, we're getting around to that, uh, the title of this event. Um, <clears throat> I was hoping to postpone that. We might be able to run out the clock. <laughs> Are we in penalty time yet? Um, uh, just to finish the thought, when they were telling me in circa 1994, 1995, people like Nicholas Negroponte and that smooth dude who was everywhere then. I've thankfully forgotten his name. Anyway, they were telling us this is going to bring, we're going to all screen each other's minds. It's going to bring people together and world peace will soon result. Mm. Um, again, you read... <laughs> Take the advertising claim and flip it on its head and you will get the truth. Um, and that was, it was already obvious in 1994 when, when the student Negroponte was talking about, wouldn't it be great to have a newspaper that doesn't have stuff that you don't want to read? It only want, it's only things that interest you and pertain to you. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. Um, and anyone with half a brain could see in 1994, no, that sounds kind of disturbing and wrong. Um, but that's now what we have. Yes. It's, it's all the daily me. Um, and that is, I would say, in some fundamental conflict with the notion of art and literature, um, which is, well, let's, let's just leave aside art, because art's problematic, and I don't really know very much about it. Um, I do know something about literature, Literature's also always been about connecting people who are not like each other. Um, one of the obvious things is they connect people who are living with those who are dead. Um, I feel this, I feel like I'm hanging out with Dostoevsky when I read Dostoevsky. It's the most amazing thing. I've, his voice is in my head. I'm seeing, I'm, I'm, I'm in Russia. I'm with him. Um, I'm with these characters. And I'm inside these characters. That's this intense form of empathic or empathetic connection with other human beings. Saying you are not the center of the world. Exactly. And in fact, that's part of the attraction. Is like, I don't have to be me for a while. It's like, I like being me okay. <laughs> but I, if I don't every day spend some time not being me in the form of reading something... Um, well, for one thing, I get kind of sick of myself. Yeah. Um, but I just, I, I need, it's like I want to escape and I want to feel connected. I don't want to feel like this isolated consumer individual. So literature at its, I, I, it almost, especially written literature, we can leave out the oral tradition of Homer and so forth. But since it became something you, you actually consume experience by reading printed words on a page, um, I think literature has fundamentally been about the experience of connecting with other people who are not present. Right. And, and, now, and, and of course, what is, what is your device? Your device sets itself up to be a better way to connect with people who are not present. So what's the problem? Yeah, exactly. And how does then literature reacts to this because now we are, you know, a few decades down the road and technology is even more consuming. It's, it's everywhere and, and it's impossible really to, to get away from. Uh, so how does literature react to this? Uh, has it been damaged? Do you see damage in the way literature is being presented and written or changed? Um. You know, literature is pretty rugged and can take care of itself. There were very dire um, predictions of the death of the novel 
oh, I don't know, 100 years ago, certainly in the 80s and 90s, is the novel dead? It's a perennial theme. Um, and no, the novel isn't dead. It's not even sick. Right. Um, uh, because it turns out that you can't fool all the people all the time. There is this blessedly stubborn segment of humanity that still isn't content with the what technology offers. Um, or, I mean, let's, let's also not neglect to say that the book is itself a form of technology. Um, a very, very durable and successful form of technology, but also very simple, and it's not, it's technology that's not doing everything for you. It's, a, it's something that is in your hands, but it requires some active investment of effort and imagination for it to work. Right. Um, Listen, there's, 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 I wanted to have said that, because, I mean, this, this is really amazing technology, as, as, as you're saying. I mean, and this is why when it was, you know, invented five, 600 years ago, it really was revolutionary. Uh, there is a clip with Walt Whitman, just wait a bit. Walt Whitman, the great American uh, poet in the 19th century, uh, there, is, there, there is one recording of him, and people who knows about everything about Whitman says, say that it is 99% sure that it's him. Uh, and, and this is a recording where he, he reads from his own poem, America. Let's, let's hear that. America, center of equal daughters, equal sons, all, all alike and good, grow, ungrow, young or old, strong, ample, fair, enduring, capable, rich, perennial with the earth, with freedom, law, and love. There it is, yes. He sounds like T.S. Eliot with kind of a hick accent. Yes, it's great, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but of course, this, the, your point being that, that you can sit there by yourself and you can reading Walt Whitman and, it, and you are there with Whitman and it's like, you cannot con if you want to read it, you can't concentrate on anything else. And it's like him saying, shh, listen to what I'm saying now. And here is, here is my voice, not like this, but through, through the texts. What, what is it that, that... The fidelity is higher in a text than it was in that recording. Maybe, but it's also very fascinating to hear his own voice reading it. When, when literature today is trying to grapple with uh, technology, one of your points in this uh, book is that it is changing the focus to the person who is writing, to the first person, the autobiographical tendency in literature, uh, which is quite big in this part of the world and also, uh, also in America. Uh, you write that, that, that these texts, in a sense, is the first or second version or draft of a, a, uh, a little text on Facebook that you're writing yourself. In what way is social media and, and autobiographical literature connected? This seems like it's going to be nothing but trouble if I answer. Um, <clears throat> thank you all for coming today. It's <laughs> nice to see you all. Yeah, I'm still on California time. It's about three thirty in the morning. This is this is our version of of that uh, thing in the trapezes uh, in a circus. I, I, I throw you, and you have to you know deal with it yourself. It, it's 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 more like the poor elephant. <laughs> it's like. Oh, Christ, do I have to put my foot up on that thing again? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'd better, or they'll whip me. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, the, the, the case I make in my new book, which I'm not really supposed to be talking about because this is not a book presentation, nevertheless, a case I make is that a difference between what we spend our time reading online in the form of Facebook posts and tweets and blogs and even um, daily journalism, uh, the difference between that and 
say, an essay or a novel is that, well, two things. One is that more care has gone into the creation of the printed thing, the essay or the novel. It has been carefully designed, worked on hard, listened to by the writer, revised. The other difference is that when I publish a book, I'm just sending it out there. I'm not sending it just to friends. It's not my Facebook friends who are reading it. It's not my Twitter followers who are reading it. It's anybody can read it. And so it's a little less safe because um, I have no idea where that text is going to end up. Uh, and, and so there's, there's, a, there's a higher risk, actually. When you're mouthing off your political opinions to a like-minded audience, that's really safe. Um, and when you are standing with a crowd ridiculing somebody else, shaming them, um, kicking them out of your community, that's also safe because your whole community is behind you. I think the writer who is trying to do something more complicated in a formally more complicated way is much more at risk. That's a key difference. Um, but the rest of it is, the part of the risk is you're investing so much. You spend whatever, five years writing a novel or you spend three months writing an essay that goes out there, it's much harder to say, you have to take credit for that. You say, I made a finished thing. I worked really hard. This is really polished. I put a lot of thought into this. I thought about possible arguments against it. I worked really hard on this. If you just write something without really thinking it through, just put it out there, if someone says, yeah, that's a bunch of shit. You say, yeah, yeah, I know, but I just, I just tossed it out there. And you move on to the next thing. So again, the, there's a, the, 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 the stakes are much higher if you make a finished thing. Mm. So I, I think that's the... If you're, if you're trying to get me to talk about autofiction, I don't want to come to the land of Knausgaard and, and, and be an unwelcome guest. Um, it's you, no way, really. Yes, I understand, but this is... This is, this is this is, the, this is Scandinavia. I understand that Kostar is Norwegian. But uh, <clears throat> if somebody is really brilliant, as, say, Knausgaard is, and I understand he's popular here, too. He is. Um, if somebody's really brilliant, you know, you'll go along with it. Uh, and yet... I fear that a lot of autofiction is essentially tr avoiding the responsibility of creating a meaningful structure, um, avoiding the, the risk, really, of inventing something and taking full responsibility for it. It, it, is, it seems to me closer to the world of the Facebook post and the blog than it does to what I consider a novel. Right. Yes, <laughs> and here also half of the audience are clapping. I know, and the other half is going to go tweet horrible things about <laughs> Tweet horrible things. Have at it. I won't read them. I don't, I'm not on Twitter. Right. But of course the argument that I'm, I'm sure you've heard uh, sometimes before is that, 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 that the world now is full of, 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 of stories and, uh, yes, yeah, stories about people. And, and there, there are much more stories now than we are surrounded by more stories now than we were before. So the autofiction is a natural con consequence of this. It's, you know, a consequence of, of the way we are interacting with, with each other now. I don't think we're awash in fantastic stories. People tell me this is the golden age of television. And indeed, some of the best TV ever made has been made in the last 15, 20 years. Thanks first to the cable revolution and now to some of the streaming TV um, producers. Uh, it's a great time for television, and yet we're constantly getting recommendations for shows. And most of them are still terrible. Mm. Every once in a while, you find something great. You find your way to Nurse Jackie or 
Silicon Valley or something that's really, really working in every way. Great actors, great writing, trenchant, going after something, really, really meaning something, not just, and, and meaning something that an intelligent person doesn't laugh at, um, or laughs only when they're supposed to. Uh, but I think, I think in any age, strong, convincing, fully realized narrative art is a rarity. Mm. So I don't think we're drowning in that, and I don't think that, and because we're not drowning in it, I think it remains something to aspire to as a writer. Mm. You should, I mean, how are we going to resist the, 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 the attraction of this technology, this incredibly addic addictive technology? I know personally, since I am a slave to my email queue, truly enslaved to it, I kind of walk like this every day at 2.30 and sit down and duly obey my email queue for an hour and a half or two hours. What keeps me from doing that? When I'm in a really good book. If I found a really good book, I make time for it. So to me, the ideal continues to be try to make something so compelling that will take you away from this other world that we mostly spend time in. Right. Um, and rather than capitulate by saying, well, I'm just going to write something like this world. Right. Of course, great literature before our times have have looked at the world and and told us something about it, and if it ha if it has been great literature, almost in a way, have changed our way of thinking about the world they were in or we're in, like like Orwell or Heller or you know great authors like this. When looking at this world we are talking about here, where technology and this consumer-driven capitalism that is threatening both birds and books, uh, what do, do you see? That literature, the old, in the old sense, the stories that are connecting people have a chance of of changing that, or at least you know, casting a light upon it that it could make us smarter. No, no, I don't. I don't think we're going to save anything with literature. There, it's it's a sad little secret <laughs> that. You're lucky to be able to, if if you if 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 you can read, if you can read and enjoy War and Peace or Jane Eyre, you're just lucky. Mm. <laughs> um, and one of the nice one of the reasons I feel at home in literature is that doesn't really track to class or economic status. There are a whole lot of rich people who are damned. They're just, they, they're, they're, they do not have the privilege of being able to entertain a morally complex narrative. They need their villains. Or they would rather not think about other people at all. And there are plenty of people sitting in prison in America who survive that time in prison by going to morally complicated literature. And they're the lucky ones in prison. And there are some rich people, too, who might like to read Christina Stead or War and Peace. They're the lucky ones. And we're kind of, we're kind of keeping something alive that has been alive for a long time. And of course, if you're a writer, you're super lucky, because not only do you, are you lucky enough to be able to read and enjoy books like that, but you're allowed to write them. Mm. Um, I find myself not caring too much about the rest of the world. What I care about is the, that international community of readers that extends around the world and can be found in every country on earth and goes back for centuries. I feel like those are my people. Those are the ones, that's, that's, that's the community I'm serving. That's what I care about. And I think it is a very durable community and I think it will persist. As I think, Birds will persist. We're going to lose a lot of them in the next century or two, but they're tough the way readers are tough, and they'll find a way. Jonathan, uh, just at the end here, you are, you are doing... Just hold it just a second. We're just going to, to finish... Uh, that was my speech. Yeah, it was a great speech, Jonathan. 
Um, you're, you're doing a, a big book right now. Would you care telling us just a little bit about uh, that one? Oh, uh, yeah, well, no. No, come on. No. It's a very big book. It's a three-volume book. Yeah, I made the mistake of mentioning that in an interview. Um, yeah. So... Um, <laughs> It's weird. I've, I've, I've all five of my previous novels have been set in the present, and I'm finally writing one. The first part of it, the first volume, is not set in the present. It's mostly 1971, 1972, and um, that's a little frustrating because so much is happening in the world that I would like to write about, and it's also difficult because I actually have to do more research than I would otherwise have to. Normally my, my, normally, my research consists of reading the newspaper and just being a person in the world. Um, but here I'm having to do some research. It feels like a guilty pleasure, though, because I started this thing oh, a year ago, and the news in the United States and other countries, Brazil, Hungary, Poland, China, Australia, it's a long list, much of Africa, it's so discouraging. It is a guilty pleasure to be able to go six hours every day and live in this world I've created in 1971. It's kind of like, I'm almost 60, I'm allowed to do this once. It's okay, it's okay, just continue doing that. Just promise that at one point you'll let all the rest of us into that world. As soon as possible. Great. Thanks so much, Thank Martin. You. It's been a pleasure. Jonathan Franzen. You have listened to a Heartland podcast. If you like what you just heard, please write us a review on iTunes, or even better, tell your friends that you heard this. We would really appreciate it. Thank you. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.